Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. My name is Charles Brandreth, and this week I find myself in Edinburgh. My co-host is Susie Dent, in my view the world's leading lexicographer, and she is normally based in Oxford. Where are you in fact today, Susie? Yes, I wish I could tell you somewhere different, because whenever you ask me this, I'm still in the same place, but it is one of my favourite places, I have to say. I'm surrounded by my dictionaries, my books. I still have, you can probably see this, Giles, but on my sofa behind me, I still have a birthday balloon that is almost a year old, (laughs) and it's still nestling there on the sofa as a little bit of pink decoration. Uh, So that's where I am. But I know you are somewhere far more exciting. Well, it's not very exciting, the room I'm in. I'm in a flat in a part of Edinburgh called Quarter Mile, which was where the, I think, the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary used to be. And then about 20 years ago, they began developing this area. And it's a wonderful mixture of modern buildings created, I think, by the Richard Rogers Partnership and old buildings, Victorian buildings. And the, the combination of ancient and modern works beautifully well. And the reason I'm here, and I'm not surrounded by balloons, but I am surrounded by flowers because I've been given so many wonderful bunches of flowers while I've been here. Oh, have people thrown them onto the stage? Well, I come onto that because they have literally, I've had presents at every single performance so far. I'm here in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh oh. Festival Fringe. And I'm performing in a show every day until four o'clock. It's ending quite soon. And in fact, probably by the time this goes out, the Festival Fringe will be over, but there's always next year. And I'm taking my show on tour. But Edinburgh is a city in August transformed. After the Second World War, the good people of Edinburgh had an idea. Let's try, the war is over. Let's try and revive the, the, the culture, the arts, the heritage of Edinburgh. And they created this big international festival in 1947 with huge companies from around the world coming to Edinburgh to perform, theatre, opera, art. And with this first festival, it was very grand and quite important, but there were people who turned up who were not quite so grand, also important, and decided to create on the fringes of the main festival their own festival, a fringe festival. And now, all these years later, literally 77 years later, the festival goes on, the International Festival, but the Fringe, that was a small part of it, is now the biggest part of it. And so I'm part of the Fringe, and there are literally, I'm one of 3,517 different shows that have been performing at the Fringe. And you can go to a show at 8 in the morning and literally at 2 the following morning on the hour, on the half hour, throughout the day, and in big venues like the one I am in called the Gordon Aikman Theatre in the in George Square, 
big venue like that, a 500-seater, or you could be literally almost in an old letterbox. Certainly, there are sort of small rooms Mm. in pubs where people put on shows. And why it's so wonderful and why people come is that it welcomes every kind of performer, every kind of talent. So there are old codgers like me. I may be the oldest person on the fringe until five years ago, the oldest person on the fringe every year was my friend Nicholas Parsons a very established British Uh, broadcaster and entertainer and known around the world because he hosted the program Just a Minute for Radio 4, which was broadcast around the world, which he hosted for more than 50 years. But he did a show on the fringe every year until he was 95 years of age. So you have him at one end and at the other end you have children coming and performing and you have shows for children, magic shows, puppet shows, uh, musicals for children, but you have teenagers performing. You have a lot of university students. In the venue I'm at, I'm on every day at four, But just before me at 2.30 are a dozen young men from Oxford University uh, who sing a cappella. And their voices are extraordinary. They've been a huge hit. I think they're called something like the Dark Blues. Anyway, they, they sing sensationally. So you've got students, university students, you've got amateur groups, professional groups, you've got solo acts, you've got fire eaters. I met the most wonderful person called Heather Burns, who swallows swords. She is one of 150 or so street entertainers. Um, She's one only six female street entertainers. She swallows a sword. She let me pull the sword out of her mouth. Oh, so did Heather explain to you how she does it? It's something about gag reflex, isn't it? You train your gag reflex to be suppressed, I think. Absolutely. That's exactly how she does it. In fact, also, it's an optical illusion that I am drawing the sword out of her mouth. What happens is she puts the sword down her throat, and then you hold the end Mm. of the sword, and she then moves her face away. So she is doing the movement. Ah. But from the audience point of view, it looks as if you are drawing the sword out. I'm giving away a bit of a secret there. And she lies on a bed of nails Ugh. and then invites the largest man in Edinburgh, <laughs> preferably wearing a kilt, to stand on top of her. <gasps> uh, and it's phenomenal. But the point is there's every kind of entertainment here from high grade. I mean, we saw, m- my wife Michelle is with me here. We went to see a play by Goldoni, the great Italian playwright, uh, an 18th century play, uh, performed at 10.30 in the morning in an old Masonic hall where Robert Burns was a member of the, the Freemasons Hall. And there's the cha- I sat in the chair that Robert Burns had once sat in. Aww. So you get that at one end. At the other end, you get later in the day when I'm performing, Frank Skinner is on the stage. So you get well-known comedians. You get up-and-coming comedians. Uh, it's just a joy. And what is so brilliant about the people in Edinburgh is they're so accepting. I first came here as a student you know, uh, 55 years ago, uh, to just to come and watch the shows. And I loved it then. I remember seeing some wonderful Shakespeare that was done as part of the real festival, and then some very amusing uh, sort of cabaret and uh, satirical reviews as part of the Fringe. But I came here first as a performer about 25 years ago when I lost my seat as a member of parliament. And somebody said to me, go up to Scotland. They don't know what a conservative is up there. Then nobody will have anything against you because they won't realize who you are um, and you can start afresh. And I came up here with a show called Zip. We did 100 musicals in 100 minutes. And we were given such a warm welcome by people who came without prejudice. They thought, well, here's the turn. Let's like it or not like it. And they seemed to love it. And so every year I've come back, uh, or not every year, but every few years I've come back. And this is more fifth, sixth, seventh time I've been back with a show that you can guess the title of because I'm illustrating it now. It's called Giles Brandreth. Can't stop talking. (laughs) So 
I recommend the festival warmly to anybody and everybody. Charles <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's worth pointing out to the purple people that because you're in Edinburgh, miles away, um, we have a slight delay on our line. So in order not to interrupt each other, I am putting my hands up as though I am in class. And I've just waved my, my um, hand in the air, which is absolutely fine. But it, as I say, reminded me of being in school, but also I was doing it when you were saying Giles Brandreth can't stop talking, which seemed a little bit ironic. But I just did want to say that a lot of people have been saying in recent years that the fringe is losing a little bit of its appeal for those who really started out, to those who really kind of start out, I suppose, at the festival. So, you know, there's some incredibly famous people who did, you know, come from absolutely nowhere and um, and use the Edinburgh Festival, or at least the Edinburgh Festival gave them their fame or an opportunity to kind of showcase themselves. Robin Williams and Steve Coogan and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. But there's a sense now I think that certainly renting apartments or renting somewhere to stay is so exorbitant that actually it's becoming more attractive to established people yes. rather than those who really need it in order to um, to have a platform, which is really sad. Do you, do you get a sense that it is losing some of that personality because of the prices? No is the truthful answer, but yes is what certainly what people are saying, what people have been writing about in the papers. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who indeed believes that her, you know, phenomenon of flea bag wouldn't have seen the light of day if the Edinburgh Festival Fringe hadn't existed. Mm. She is now the honorary president of the Fringe Society. And she began not that long ago, 2013 in Cowgate, that's where her show began. And that sort of thing does still happen. You are completely yeah. correct that it is the, the costs are frightening. Getting accommodation is a challenge. People do still find a way. There are university rooms that people use, and some of the young people I have met have not been staying in Edinburgh, but have been staying on the fringes of Edinburgh and commuting in every day to do their show. So, yes, there are challenges there, but there still seem to me to be a huge number of brilliant new talents, uh, not just new talents from this country, but Excellent. also internationally. For example, uh, I met a fabulous Indian comedian called Uruj, who is huge in India, two million followers in India. But she came over, she's doing a show here, and she's never performed in Britain before. She comes from Mumbai. And she said it's so funny because what she does in Mumbai is considered quite daring, quite shocking. Uh, that, you know, she does taboo subjects in India. She got up and began talking about divorce to a room full of people whose parents were divorced. So it, it wasn't shocking to them at all. So it's truly international. There are a lot of young mm. people here. I think what has changed a bit is there may be less theatre than there was. There was a lot of individuals. In the old days, there was much more drama, but that is expensive to bring a set, um, musicians, performers, team things, maybe have, there are a few of those. But it's still, in my view, pretty fantastic. Good. So I, I wouldn't worry too much. But let's get on to the language of the fringe. I mean, actually, where does the word fringe come from? Is it a haircut? What is what is a fringe? <laughs> it's interesting. I was just considering this morning how many words in English come from the idea of clothing. And um, we've talked about this uh, a little bit before. And this is one of them. I mean, just uh, the, what, the one I was particularly thinking of was succinct. 
And succinct goes back to um, the Latin under the belt, because in Roman times, citizens who would wear their flowing white togas would tuck them up into their belts in order to stop them sweeping the dirty streets. So something succinct is kind of tucked in. Um, And then we have texting people, which is, you know, a sibling of, of textiles because we weave our words like we weave our our fabrics, which I love. But fringe is on the outskirts. It did begin with a clothing sense. And it simply goes back to a Latin word meaning shreds, really. So I think it was the sort of the edging of hair or fibers on an animal or plant or a border on fabric. But one of a huge family of words that originated there. Also, given that we are a language podcast, what immediately came to my mind when you said a cappella and the group of students from Oxford is the lovely, lovely origin of a cappella, um, which you may remember. Do you remember that one? Well, is it, I mean, obviously what it is, it's people singing without accompaniment. Cappella is a chapel, isn't it? It is. And do you remember where chapel comes from? Oh, Lord, no, tell me. There's where chapel, chapel itself comes from. So you're absolutely right. So cappella means chapel. To sing a cappella is in the manner of the manner of the chapel. In other words, it's unaccompanied really by instrumentation. But chapel itself is gorgeous because that cappella originally in Latin, meant little cloak. Ah. This might ring bells now. So it goes back to the legend of St. Martin of Tours, who met a half-clad or, or almost naked beggar on the freezing streets. He, he was an ancient Roman soldier, I think. And he took out his sword and he cut his cloak in half so that he could give one half to this freezing beggar. And in some versions of the story, that night, Jesus appeared to him in a dream saying that he was the beggar and thanking St. Martin for helping him. And St. Martin's half of that cloak, that capella, that little cloak, was then, after his death, kept in a shrine as a holy relic. And the idea of a sanctuary for something holy then moved from the little cloak to the building itself. And we get capella, little cloak but actually then the meaning of a chapel, which I think is just gorgeous. I absolutely love that story. It's very charming. Completely unrelated to the Edinburgh Fringe, apart from your students singing a cappella. Well, I am in Edinburgh, which is sometimes known as Old Reeky. I mean, it's a a city of extraordinary Mm. culture. It's actually, did you know this? It's a UNESCO city of literature, recognised internationally because of the number of extraordinary authors who hail from Edinburgh. Old Riki, A-U-L-D, Riki, R-E-E-K-I-E. They say, oh, an old Riki. What's that got to do with Edinburgh? What's the origin of that? Well, I think it would translate as old smoky. And that was a reference to all the smoke pollution and the smog and the sort of rich, ripe sense of, I think I think the name actually goes back to the 17th century. So we're not talking medieval here, but I think it's just a reference to a kind of smoky city um, and very tall buildings, quite sort of narrow streets where the kind of smoke and the fog perhaps linger. So it's a lovely, really resonant term, isn't it? And Edinburgh itself... Its site was first named as Castle Rock for obvious reasons, because its castle lies up on that on that gorgeous rock, and you can look up to it from so many places in the city. But Edinburgh itself, we think, goes back to well, if you look back to Old English, it would mean Edwin's Fort, and this would be the seventh century King Edwin of Northumbria. And the Burg bit you'll find in uh, lots of place names, and that means a sort of fortified place, really, a fortress or uh, somewhere that is kind of protected 
Um, so that's where we think Edinburgh itself comes from. Well, what's interesting about Edinburgh, as you rightly say, it's on highs. There are these rocks. There's the, there's the castle up there on the hill, and there are lows as well. And people sometimes think of Robert Louis Stevenson, who created Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in those murky Edinburgh streets, with there being people leading double lives, the, the grand life and the, uh, the, the more murky life. And I think, when I think of the Edinburgh of the Victorian times, of the fog, the smoke, and the amazing myths that were created by the great Scottish writers like Robert Louis Stevenson, who created Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Arthur Conan Doyle, who created Sherlock Holmes, J.M. Barrie, who created Peter Pan, these extraordinary mythic figures created 120 years ago that still live. There's an, there is a fantastic atmosphere, I think, in Edinburgh. Are there any other Edinburgh words that you want to tell us a little bit about their origins? Well, we have Arthur's Seat, uh, famously. Oh, yes. And yeah, that's associated with lots of different legends. So we actually, truth be known, we don't really know where it came from. So some people say it's a corruption of a Scots word meaning the height of arrows. So it would be kind of archer's seat because of the view that it affords. And then that over time was corrupted to Arthur's seat. Um, some say it means place on the high ground. So Arthur's seat, no, no one quite knows who Arthur is. Could be King Arthur. Lots of legends around, you know, uh, to do with him as well. Arthur's seat is a place that people climb up to. We should explain if you're coming from around the world and you want to see Arthur's seat. It's not a, a, an individual. I mean, I have a friend here who's often here called Arthur Smith. And I think he danced at a show called Arthur's Seat, where basically he showed you his bottom. But Arthur's Seat is actually a celebrated vantage point that people climb up to to enjoy the view across Edinburgh. I have never been up to Arthur's Seat. Robert Louis Stevenson apparently said it was a hill for magnitude, a mountain in virtue of its bold design. But it's in Holyrood Park, isn't it? And although we pronounce it Holyrood, it has got that holy in it. And rude was actually an old English term for a cross. In fact, it was our standard term for a cross before the Latin cross came in. And Holyrood is a, is a Christian relic, isn't it? Alleged to be part of the true cross upon which Jesus died. Uh, Greyfriars Bobby is a little statue of a dog. And I do pass this every day. I, I've been up to the castle. I went to see the wonderful military tattoo, which was fantastic. I've not this year been up to Arthur's seat. Uh, I am going out to Leith, which I love going to because of that famous tongue twister, the Leith police dismitheth us. But Greyfriars mm -hmm. Bobby, I pass the statue every day and it's outside a pub and I can't remember what the story is. And there's a there's always so many crowds around the statue. I've not read the inscription. Do you know the story of Greyfriars Bobby? Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And it's said that Bobby was a, was a terrier who in 19th century Edinburgh became famous because he... I think it was that he spent 14 years guarding the grave of his owner until his owner died in 1872. And really well-known story. There's a commemorative statue, as you say. I think he might even be buried nearby. I'm not sure, but it's, it's gorgeous, Greyfriars Bobby. I'm sure also there will be uh, ghostly tales attached to this because I imagine that Edinburgh is rife with wonderful tales of hauntings and spectral apparitions. Do you know any of them? I don't. 
I would love to. I mean, I I want to believe in ghosts and I want to believe in friendly ghosts. Look, we must take a break. Um, When we come back, we've got so much to discuss. We really should do a Scottish episode because have we ever talked about kilts and spoddens and maybe a thistle? Everywhere I go, I see a thistle. So maybe you can tell us about the, the, the word thistle after the break. Susan, please, can you tell me what wanderlust means? Well, it comes from German and it means a strong desire to travel. And Jazz, I know you love to tell anecdotes. So do you have a good travel story? I had an amazing time in Iceland. I went pony trekking and the person who was in charge of the pony trekking told me that in those days, on a Thursday evening, there was no television in Iceland because people were supposed to be at home reading books. Well, let me tell you about Explore Worldwide. They organise small group adventures that are led by local tour leaders so that you can fully immerse yourself in local knowledge whilst exploring a new country. The most important part of the holiday is respecting local culture and environment. And Explore can help you find expert tour leaders that can get you off the beaten track and into the heart of your adventure. Whether it's a food and wine tour in the hilltop towns of Tuscany or a walking tour in the rice fields of Vietnam, Explore take care of everything, putting the quality of their local tour leaders front and centre so you'll truly understand the wow factor of where you are. If you're thinking about your next adventure, head to exploreworldwide.co.uk to find out more. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. I'm in Edinburgh. Susie's in Oxford. Susie, you'll be excited to know that in my audience the other day for my show, uh, there were there was somebody who had purple hair. And I saw her in the street <laughs> afterwards, and she said, I'm a purple person. I've got purple hair. Aww. I'm a purple person. And she and her partner are regular listeners to the podcast, which is fantastic. I love it. Tell me, please, if you would, about the word thistle. It's it's a sort of almost mm. an emblematic plant of Scotland, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. So thistle itself, it's uh, of Germanic origin. In German, I think it's called distel, um, D-I-S-T-E-L. But absolutely emblematic. And um, we're not quite sure why, but one legend has it that a sleeping party of Scots warriors was saved from ambush by an invading Viking army when one of the enemies trod on the spiky plant, which anyone, as anyone will know, who's brushed up against a thistle would be extremely painful and second only to treading on a piece of Lego. And the idea is that the cry of the person who trod on it roused the uh, the sleeping Scots who then vanquished the invader and so adopted the thistle as their national symbol. No evidence to support the account, but it's a lovely one. The thistle became a royal symbol on uh, coinage issued by James III in 1470. Um, and there is a Latin motto of the order of the thistle, Nemo me 
impune laxesit, which means no one attacks me with impunity, which is a bit threatening, isn't it? So yeah, so the thistle, as you say, gorgeous, gorgeous plant. I passed quite a lot of them yesterday, actually, although I wasn't in Edinburgh, but they are absolutely beautiful. Let's do another week, a special Scottish episode, and we can discuss kilts and spoddens and all of that. I think also looking at the language of Scots would be absolutely wonderful, because one of my favourite resources online is the dictionaries of the Scots language, and it's given me some of my all-time favourites. So I think that's a lovely idea. Yes. Let's do a special episode on Scotland. Yeah. On Scottish words, kilts, sporrans, and the like. A challenge for you, Susie, before we have our correspondence. Can you say, two tongue twisters, one, the Leith police dismisseth us, Leith being a part of Edinburgh, um, and the next one will be six thick thistles. Try and say both of those in quick succession. The Leith police dismisseth the least police dismisseth us. <laughs> <laughs> the least police dismisseth us. Us. That's very good. And six thick thistles. Six thick thistles. I can do that one. Oh, you the can. least police dismisseth us. Yay! Just once. <laughs> well, you've done quite well. I think they are two of the most challenging tongue twisters in the world. Anyway, I'm in Edinburgh, Susie's in Oxford, but our listeners are around the world. They get in touch with us via our new email address, which is purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com. Somethingrhymes, one word, dot com. Purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com. And I say all over the world, I think our first message comes to us from, well, Paul Vander, who is in the United States of America. Dear Susie and Giles, recently my friend described a footballer's assist as sick which prompted another friend to ask when he started using words with negative connotations like sick as a way to describe something that is actually great. His question piqued my interest, and now I'm wondering if this is a phenomenon that has recently popped up in slang, or if it has a long history in English. I think I recall Susie saying she likes the idea of being called wicked, so I just want to say Something Rhymes With Purple is a wicked sick podcast with wicked sick hosts. Fondly, Purple Paul Vander from the U.S. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's truly sick. Okay, tell us all about this, Susie. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, I'm sure I did say that. Okay, well, sick, meaning good, is an example of what linguists sometimes call semantic inversion, which is a posh way of saying that, um, as you can tell, a word flips its meaning and it's particularly used for words of disapproval that then become words of approval. And sick is one of those. And that's first recorded in 1983 in this sense. And first of all, it was, uh, I think actually now it's really particularly used in skateboarding and surfing, but originally it was more general. And the first example in the Oxford English Dictionary is from the campus slang of the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, and it says, sick, unbelievably good. The Fleetwood Mac concert was sick. Now, the question is really, as with Wicked, why do we do this? Well, we do it because slang rejoices in rebellion. So it is all about subverting expectations, being unpredictable. That's what slang loves to do. As we know, Giles, because we've talked about this, slang is one of the oldest categories of language ever to be collected. So we tend to think of it as a very modern phenomenon. But no, slang has been around, particularly tribal slang and the slang associated with various communities, particularly the criminal underworld, for example, for centuries. We need slang because we need that 
area to go to when we want to be rebellious, when we want to go off the the standard path for all sorts of reasons, whether we want to belong to a group, whether we just want to be informal, but it is a really important unifying language. So the oldest example that I can think of, but there Mm -hmm. will be many more, and I think it would make a fantastic research subject for me. But one of the oldest I can think of is cool, because hot as an adjective of approval, you know, you you kind of get that if something is hot, it's sort of got energy, it's sort of, it's kind of buzzing. You associate heat with that kind of, you know, just sort of bubbliness, I suppose. But cool, less so. So why did cool come to mean trendy or really fantastic or, you know, be one of uh, one of those other adjectives of approval. And the very first example that we have of that is actually from the 19th century in public school English slang, uh, where cool began to be used as the flip side of hot, but meaning the same thing. So it didn't mean if something was hot, if something was cool, it was unfashionable, unattractive, undesirable. It actually meant the same thing. So that's one of the earliest examples I can think of. But I'm going to search for more because I have a feeling that we have been doing this and slang has been doing this for a very long time. But it's a fantastic question from Paul. Mm, Very intriguing. Well, I hope, uh, Paul, you learned something there. I certainly did. We've got another letter now. This comes to us from Ian Roger. And he writes, Dear Susie and Giles, I'm writing to see if you can solve a problem for me. Many years ago, I worked in Saudi Arabia. When I left, one of the Saudis who worked for me asked me when I was coming back. I replied I was going for good. And his reply was, what is good about it? As he was sad that I was leaving. In the years since, I've tried to find out the origins of this phrase without success. Isn't that interesting? Kind regards, Ian Roger. What do you make of that? Going for good. Going forever, but why is it why is it for good? Yes, and they have it's interesting. They have this in other languages as well. In French, it's pour de bon, same thing for good. So it means permanently for a final time, once and for all. Obviously, recorded since the fifteenth century, so it's been around for a very long time. But we think it's a shortening, even though this is this is recorded a tiny bit later. We're only talking about decades, and when it comes to so long ago, it's just highly likely we haven't found the printed records yet that would give the correct sequence. But we think it's a shortening of for good and all as a sort of sign-off. So for good and all, the earliest example that we have so far, 1520, they desired the birds greet and small to mew the hawk for good and all. And the idea is simply less to do with good meaning positive, but just mm. it, it, it's, it's really hard to actually explain this in mm. specific terms without using the term for good. But it just is a wrap up. Do you see what I mean? For good and all is the way that you would sort of wrap up. It's a bit like happily ever after when actually, you know, that holds a whole multitude of emotions and events. But yeah, used as a sign off since the 15th century and for good and all eventually became for good. But it's a slightly different sense there. And it's interesting that we're talking about good here, given that we've been talking about wicked and sick after Paul's question, because good is the most frequently used adjective of commendation in English. And is one of the most common adjectives in all periods from Old English to the present day. So it's unsurprising that it has slipped into many an expression and has become quite versatile as a result. We learn so much from you and indeed from the interesting questions from our listeners. So do please keep in touch with us. Do you have a trio of interesting words to tantalize us with this week? Do I have a trio? I always do have a trio. Okay, so the very first word that I have for you is what has a lovely definition. It's the love of parents towards their children. 
uh, recorded in 1656. And it's philo, which we know is from the Greek for loving. So that's why we get logophile and dendrophile, tree lover, etc. from philostorgi, S-T-O-R-G-I-E, philostorgi. And as it is simply parental love. And I agree um, with all the silent protests that are coming from the purple listeners that it's not something that would stick in the mind. But I just love the fact that there is a term for this natural affection. It's very rare and is unlikely to be sort of picked up. But yeah, it's just family affection. I think that's really beautiful. So that's my first one for you. The second one is, well, I just think this is quite useful as well. Much as happy-fy is a word that I use often to make happy. So I'm really happy-fied by this. There is a similar word, which is far more negative, to make something nasty or to deliver something in a nasty way is to nastify it. Um, to nastify. I just think that's quite pithy and quite useful. And the second, I'm not sure if you are this, Giles. I don't think you are because you do something different every day. Again, simply useful because it's very succinct. A routineer. And a routineer is someone who lives according to a routine. Is that you? No, uh, not a routineer. I ought to be more of a routineer because I know, for example, if you go to bed at the same time, you sleep better. And unfortunately, for example, I go to bed at very different times. Sometimes I'm lucky and I, you know, get to bed at 10 or 10.30. Other times, oh, while I've been in Edinburgh, I've been sometimes yeah. getting to bed at one in the morning mm. and you break your routine. So yeah. I wish I were a routineer, but I like the, your beautify. Mm. Okay. One for the Be- aspiration list. Yeah, it is. It is. To form a routine. Happify. Happify is good. I want a happify. It's, it's like beautify, isn't it? I mean, it's the same idea. Yes, it is. And it's, um, yeah, I just like the if I suffix because you can attach it to almost anything and uh, and get to where you want to go. So that's my trio for today. How about a poem? Is it time for me then to poetify? Is that what I'm going to do if I read you a poem? Or am I poemifying you? I don't know. Uh, we talked about, we mentioned in passing, Robert Louis Stevenson, one of my heroes. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is an extraordinary concept as a as a novel, Treasure Island is one of the great, if not greatest, adventure stories ever written. But Robert Louis Stevenson also wrote some completely enchanting poems aimed at young people, but I think they work for people of all ages. And one of my favorites, talking about going to bed at the same time and getting a good night's sleep, uh, sleep is a wonderful thing. And this is a poem by him called The Land of Nod by Robert Louis Stevenson, one of the great Scottish poets. From breakfast on through all the day, at home among my friends I stay. But every night I go abroad, afar into the land of Nod. All by myself I have to go, with none to tell me what to do. All alone beside the streams and up the mountainsides of dreams, the strangest things are these for me, both things to eat and things to see, and many frightening sights abroad till morning in the land of Nod. Try as I like to find the way, I never can get back by day, nor can remember plain and clear the curious music that I hear. So that's the land of Nod. But it's interesting, he makes it rhyme with abroad. Of course, he may have spoken with a Scottish accent, but every night I go abroad, afar, into the land of Nod. Maybe that's it, abroad, 
Nod. Maybe that's how they rhyme. Why is the land of Nod called the land of Nod? Uh, so it's called, well, so the land of Nod was um, in the Bible. So Nod was, it's actually unrelated to sleep, really. It was a place name, wasn't it? I think in Genesis. Uh, but because when we nod off, when we sleep, our head lols, uh, it became associated with a state of sleep. So um, the original biblical reference had nothing to do with sleep as far as I know. Very good. Well, thank you for all of that. Uh, and look, if you've enjoyed the show, please do continue to follow us wherever it is, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. And do recommend us to friends and family. And for more Purple, actually, there's also the Purple Plus Club, where you get ad-free listening and a few exclusive bonus episodes on words and language. Yes, Something Rhymes With Purple is a Sony Music Entertainment production. It was produced by Naya Dio with additional production from Nemi Oiku, Hannah Newton, Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, and with us today, the brilliant Richie. I want to see him in a kilt. I'm not sure he'd want to see himself in a kilt. We'll ask. Mm-hmm.